Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, a member of the World Business Academy's Board of Directors, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's president and founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on February 7th, 2018, amidst a remarkable churn and swings in the stock market. Ronaldo, there's plenty to talk about, but I think we want to, we want to start with uh, your, a conversation you had with a top Trump administration economist. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. Welcome to everybody. Uh, what I find fascinating, um, just yesterday I had the good fortune of talking to a top uh, Trump uh, administration economist, and, and, and what we ended up talking about, how the... You cannot, and I sent a tweet out on this this morning, you cannot understand how the economy will function in the absence of looking at how the society that gives rise to that economy functions, and vice versa. In other words, you can't, you can't expect a growing economy in a collapsing society, and vice versa. So what's happening is that at the highest levels, greed has blinded certain of the economic forces, uh, and I would call them traditional economic forces, the people who run companies like Exxon, not the companies that like uh, Salesforce.com. These traditionally greed-driven enterprises, which, you know, created a $6 billion this this year only tax benefit for Exxon because of the tax act that just happened. And you notice I didn't call it tax reform because there's nothing reform about it. Um, So when you're looking at the economy, and specifically the stock market, the stock market is overvalued, and everybody's been saying that, including Janice, Janet Yellen on her last day as Fed chairwoman. Uh, the stock market's overvalued. If you look at traditional price earnings ratios, it's way overvalued, and we've all known that. And people have been asking the question: Well, what you know, what's going to bring? You know, is that balloon going to keep going up? Is can it go up forever? What's going to make it pop? And what's happened in the seven point four percent correction that occurred in the two day period? which is now they've recouped, I guess, a little bit of that. They've recouped about one and a quarter percent of that. So, and the Dow is basically even today. What causes that is not just an awareness of the price-earnings ratio being out of whack. And it's not just the awareness that the, the days of easy credit are over. Um, and that was the lead story, by the way, in the New York Times today which I think people should really pay attention to because it's really true. The, the era of easy money lending is drawing to a close, not just in the U.S., but globally. And that's what's given rise to the eco- global economy we're currently enjoying. So going back to fundamentals, if you can't have an economy in the absence of a society, I, that is to say, without a society, there's no economy. So the, the society affects the economy. The same is true of the economy. The economy affects society. Now, the point of all that is when you have a society that's becoming increasingly dysfunctional, whether that's politically dysfunctional 
or other ways which I can list, then it stands to reason that the economy that arises from that society will be adversely impacted. So now you have not only the price-earnings ratios are historically completely out of whack, you also have the issue associated with the fact that the era of easy lending is coming to an end. We can talk some more about that if you like. And the third and compounding factor is you've got a society increasingly in chaos. And I'm not just talking about political chaos. I'm talking about the regulatory chaos that occurs in the midst of political chaos. I'm talking about the realignment of, of more wealth towards the 1% and away from everybody else. I'm talking about the, the, the chaos that occurs in regulatory environments when things that appear to have certain economic benefits in the short term have enormously massive negative consequences in the long term. Example, I believe this year will go down as the worst year in the history of the nation for casualty insurers, and I don't think they saw it coming. I don't think they saw three massive disasters one month apart. Uh, we were the third one, of course. And if you wanted, I would consider the Houston flood the first one, Hurricane Maria clearly the second one, and the Santa Barbara fire and mudslides is the third one. Now, and you, you cannot, you, you simply cannot have an economy of which the stock market is a marker going up and up when the society is increasingly in chaos. You can't also have it when you take 11 million people and you tell them don't spend any money even though we're a consumer economy because you people are probably illegal and if, we, if you spend your money, you won't have it and when we throw you out of the country back to Mexico, you'll be broke. And by the way, those 11, and I was talking to a banker yesterday, also a Hispanic banker who's done very well, who's here very legally, not a, not a question there. And this Hispanic banker concurred that what that banker's seeing is that there are Hispanic clients who are legally here are also reducing their spending out of fear that they may have to send more money home or to their relatives if their relatives get booted out of the country. So there's a, there's a, a decrease of spending happening. Now, there's the countervailing force, which is masking some of this, is uh, I believe we, we've been talking for a number of months about the fact in January of this year, the new um, minimum wage rules are taking effect in 19 different jurisdictions. And that's giving the people with the worst pay in the, in, in the country, the people living on minimum wage, a substantial increase. And because they're living so close or below the poverty line, they'll spend 100% of what they get. That said... Uh, with that one minor, uh, one minor gray of sunlight on, on the situation, the overwhelming picture in the United States is a country in chaos, a government in chaos, international um, confrontations bubbling, the end of easy money era. You put all these factors together and there is no way that I would not feel comfortable doubling down on my earlier prediction from the end of last year, we will be at a recession in this country by the second half of the year. Now that has enormous consequences politically because you can imagine the Republicans not wanting to go into the by-elections with a recession on their hands. As it is, they're scared to death the stock market will fall. So but the stock market falling is the least of their issues. So Ronaldo, let's let's flesh some of this out because you've just thrown about 30 topics that are all interrelated, but we want to go through and explain each one of them. Um, let's start with the most intriguing thing. And my biggest question is, how did you, and don't give me any sources or names, but how did you wind up talking to a Trump uh, economist? And what was it? Tell me a little bit more about that conversation. Well, it, it was in confidence. And, and, and I don't, I can't even name the, the agency specifically where they operate because then it would give it away. Okay. And, and, and it came to me because as you can imagine, um, many of them are looking for new fields to plow. And um, the conversation was a wine-raging one. What I found particularly refreshing, and this was a, 
uh, an economist with an incredible pedigree, um, that we reached agreement pretty quick that this fundamental question simply wasn't being addressed. Economies do not operate in a vacuum from the societies that they arise from. So when you have challenges in that society and you do not address them thoughtfully in, in a smart way, you get a heck of a mess. Yeah. Now, I would say that um, the Obama years, which launched us in the current uh, trajectory where we've been building the economy slow but steady, and I think he could have done a better job building it faster in the last four to six years, still, it was a slow, steady build on very good fundamentals. Wage gap was closing with regard between the, the, the richest and the poorest. And now we're back to the Gilded Age. Uh, and I know you and I had a conversation recently, uh, Matt, about the Gilded Age. I don't know if this is the point to bring it up or wait till later, but I think where we are right now, and I think people know this, if they think that the, the Paul Ryan gave this example, oh, we talked to this woman and she was so happy because she was, got a dollar and a half more in her paycheck per week, which meant that she could pay for a Costco membership. Wasn't she glad to have the tax bill? Well, in that same tax bill, as I, I noted earlier, Exxon got $6 billion. Uh, about 90% of the benefits of that tax bill went either to the top 1%, not even the top two, the top 1% or to corporate activities. Now, when you put more money in the hands of large companies that were already doing great to begin with, it might sound like a great thing for the stock market because it means they're going to have more profits. And that's exactly true for the short term. But what are they going to do for profits tomorrow when their customers don't keep coming into the store to keep buying? Right. That's what a consumer confidence, a consumer drive. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt, by the way, was a trust buster. He realized if you let dinosaurs mate inevitably, in, 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 you know, without stop, then what happens is they get so big they're not sustainable. And so what we've been doing is been kowtowing, or well, that's the wrong word. We've been we've been placating, we've been feeding the greed of Wall Street and our largest corporations, and we've been doing it at the expense of entrepreneurism and at the expense of a uh, consumer economy that requires a better disposal of income across a wider spectrum of people. Yeah. So let's talk about that a, a little bit more. So your point about society and the economy being linked is a really important one that you know people understand inherently, kind of. You know, average, I'd say, like just common sense tells us that the economy is a part of society and society has a real influence on the economy. Um, and the, the, the perspective that the economy is roaring while society is stagnating and, and fracturing is a real mismatch. Right. And that's kind of what you're saying is we've run out of time for those two things to be so far apart. Yeah, and, 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 and any single one of the three factors I gave, I, I mentioned, the end of the easy debt era, the massive dislocation of the price-earnings ratio relative to historic averages, and or the dislocations in, 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 in society and themselves, which are going to create inflationary pressures, any of those things could have triggered what started as a correction on Wall Street to an overvalued Dow Jones. Yeah. However... That's just the trigger. That's not the end result. So I'm going to double down also my prediction that we're in for a 20 to 30% correction. We've now hit about 55 to 6% of it. So we've got a long way to go. And I'm not saying it's going to be like going off, falling off a cliff like it did the other day with an 1,100-point day. But you're going to see a long and steady downward trend. And I am delighted to report that when I told people last October and November, buy the VIX, don't worry about it. Just put it away, and the VIX being the, the worry index, right? Yeah. 
which has now hit an all-time high yesterday. Um, we, just put the money in the VIX because you know what you're basically betting on is that the economy will have to adjust downward if the society continues to be abused. And that's what's happening. In addition, we said to people, buy gold. Buy, we told them originally buy 10% of your portfolio. Then we upped it in November to 15%. That's turned out to be very good advice. You've made money with that. And it's a heck of a strategy to protect the downside. It's your insurance policy. And uh, with inflation rising, which there's a better chance than not that it will, it, with um, that, that's one of the things that causes gold to go up, inflation. The debasement of the American currency, so the Trump administration has decided to let the dollar fall in value, that causes gold to go up. And instability, political and social instability, is the third thing that causes gold to go up in value. All three are happening on steroids right now. And people are just beginning to realize, oh my God, we have really made a mess. How do we fix it? So let's how let, do we fix before it? we go there? Let's let's flesh out the problems a little bit more. So let's talk about inflation and what's driving fears of inflation, which is what the the common wisdom is, on, at least in other media, about what what happened the other day and why there was a, a big freak out and a giant sell off. You're saying why is it there's a fear of inflation? Is that yes, what you're asking? Correct. Because first of all, as I said earlier, the Trump administration has talked the dollar down relative to other currencies, that's a problem, number one. Number two, when the Fed, along with other international monetary institutions, chooses to pull back some of the liquidity they've been pumping into the market since 2008, and the Fed's been doing that for about a year and a half now, but they've been doing it with, with more, much more aggressively than the last 12 months. They've been slowing down for a year and a half. They've been pulling, out, pulling money out of the excess liquidity they pumped in yeah. starting 2008. Yes, got it. So, and, and, and the last four quarters, they've gone up faster than they did in the prior four quarters. I mean, they were comfortable with that. And then that tells me that they see inflation as a problem because what they're trying to do is pull the liquidity out of the market because they see inflation building. And as they see inflation building, they want to make sure that they don't feed excess expansion because of what's called easy money. So what they're doing is tightening it up. And that means the cost of your car payment is going to go up. The cost of, if you get a mortgage, the cost of your mortgage is going to go up. Basically, everything you buy is going to go up because the cost of money is going to go up. It also means, and this is a key one, and I don't want to get off on a tangent if you don't want to go there, Matt, but right now, 106% of GDP, meaning if you take the total debt of the United States of America against what it, what it generates in wealth in one year, that's the GDP. And by the way, I don't think GDP is a great measure. I think there are better ways to measure the economy, but that's the one most people use, so I'll stick with it for today. The ratio of debt to GDP is now 106 to 1, meaning we have 6% more debt than we have annual income, in effect. That 106 is about to go to 115. Why? Because the cost of the debt's going to go up as inflation increases, and it's already started. Two, we're accelerating the, the debt forward. In other words, we're, we're, we're creating ballooning deficits. So we just did the tax bill, which is uh, $1.5 trillion. They say, my personal guess, and I, 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 I said this to you a month ago, I think it's going to probably be closer to uh, $2, $2 trillion or more. Uh, you're going to see some guns versus butter conversations at the Congress. And when you do, you're going to see the Congress unable to give up guns or butter. That's going to be inflationary spending. So when you see all these factors together, you go, okay, I get it. We're going into a period of economic 
challenge with the Dow at an all-time high on the price-earnings ratio and the political situation in the United States more grave than ever and the political institutions in the other OECD countries in considerable question. You put all those factors together, there's no way that the market, the Dow, which is a predictor of future domestic and global economic activity, there's no way it can keep going up. And so you go, oops, is it too high now? Everybody knows it is. And that starts the correction. The question is, at what point does the correction end and why does it end? But for our listeners, what you need to know is this is not the time to be buying into the market. Can, can I talk about buying into the dip? Yeah, I think that's a good time to put that yeah. in, Ronaldo. And I think Melanie Hobbs is a relatively smart lady. For those of you who don't know her, she's a, uh, uh, let me see, she's a CBS economic correspondent. She's married to George Lucas. She's a very bright uh, quite articulate person, but I think she, her, her economics are shallow. She tends to repeat conventional economic thinking without serious intellectual rigor. So she made an announcement, um, it was yesterday morning, I believe, that this was the time to, quote, buy into the dip. What is buy into the dip means is if you believe that the market that's gone up for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years is going to keep going up for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in the same fashion, then when the market goes down, you buy on that dip and you accumulate more stocks because they will eventually come out of the dip and you'll have made more money because you bought, quote unquote, on the dip. And what she was advocating, which is conventional economic theory, just keep accumulating more and more stocks and you'll be happy you did because when you go to retire, you'll be, you know, you'll be worth a ton of money. That is extraordinarily bad advice. This is not th that wasn't a dip that happened that seven point four percent correction. That was the beginning of the unraveling. So if you're going to buy on the dip and you believe in that theory, the dip we haven't hit bottom yet. In fact, there's a great saying, Matt, in uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous community: you don't um, you don't hit bottom till you stop digging. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, you're not going to hit bottom on this economy till you stop destroying it. So you got to stop reallocating more money from the middle class and the lower economic classes to the 1%. you got to stop doing that. It doesn't work in a consumer economy. You've got to stop playing off economic interests against political interests. In other words, you can't be promoting coal and trying to dissuade people from photovoltaic and wind when the whole world knows that's the most cost-effective way to run your economy and a better way to create jobs. So you can't keep doing these things to yourself. So me, and until you do, you haven't hit bottom. Let me let me ask you about that. I think that's a good a good way to frame this, Ronaldo. Is so we know we know what's wrong, and we know that it, the trends are negative, and we're probably going through what looks like a massive correction that could lead to a recession. That's the prediction. Um, do you have some examples of what we shouldn't be doing now in terms of the new Gilded Age, and how we could actually move from here to uh, real policies that actually help the middle class and, and help rebuild the economy? Yeah, I think that um, it, it's got to start in our situation with politics. So I want to depersonalize it from one individual, Donald Trump, and speak to what everybody reported widely was the, the motive behind the tax base was to deliver between the tax law, behind the tax law changes, was so that the Republican Party could, quote, deliver for its base, close quote, right? You heard all that talk, right? Yeah. What do they mean? Well, they, they say that the donor class 
in the Republican Party, not the not the Tea Party people, the donor class was clamoring for that tax bill. And they were demanding that the Republicans deliver that come hell or high water, or they were going to stop dumping tons and tons of money into the Republican Party, which they've been doing since Citizens United. Right. That's the, that's how the gate opened. Well, it's yeah, it's probably been going longer than that. But yeah, no, it's been going longer, but it accelerated under Citizens United. If you look at the curve yeah. of, of donor mm-hmm. donations. So that the, the donor class, the Republican Party, demanded these baubles and all this wealth. And the Republican Party felt that it had to deliver it. So it made um, a pact with the devil, so to speak, to support someone who in the primaries, 90% of the Republican Party totally found repulsive a man named Donald Trump. And they said, you know what? He may be an idiot, but he's our idiot. And so we'll cover for him so he can give us the tax bill that our donors are requiring. That's what happened in a nutshell. That level of greed and that level of political um, cowardice together is creating the situation we're now in. Now, are the Democrats without blame? Heck no. There's a lot of things the Democrats could have done and should have done, and they haven't done. And I'm not sure um, where they're going to end up. I, I, I doubt that the Republican Party, as you know it today, will be the same Republican Party in 2019. I think the midterm elections are going to crack the Republican Party significantly, if not down the middle. A huge chunk is going to calve off like a giant glacier. The Democratic Party may go through the same phenomenon, and I suspect that would be a good thing. Meaning you may see people in the Democratic Party saying, you know what, I'm a Bernie person, and I tried to do a deal with people like Pelosi, and the truth is she doesn't get it. And what she's doing, she's been co-opted. She's part of an old political system that isn't working. Let's go for people who are much more progressive, people who are much more confrontational about what they want from government and society. Let's go for those people. And the heck with the traditional Democrats. And if that happens, and I think it's going to happen, by the way, then the Democratic Party is going to be split. So you could be in the very happy situation, in my point of view, that by 2019, you've got four significant parties in this country what I'll call traditional Republicans, what I'll call Trumpists, and what I would call traditional Democrats, and what I would call progressives. And those four different voting blocks are going to have a major decision to make in 2020. In 2018, those four blocks are going to coalesce on policies that will be reverted back to more sane ones, less ones less based in greed, or the economy won't come out of the recession that's going to start in the second half of this year. And people aren't going to like that. They're not going to vote to keep that recession going. So they're going to, they're going to really, really force political um, dialogue to start to talk about things that are real and not things that aren't. So, for example, the debt ceiling is a silly thing. If I were a congressman, and I hope there's a congressman listening to this, and uh, the debt ceiling question comes up, I would trade it for the following. I'd say, you know what, Mr. President, Republicans, we will agree to let the debt ceiling go up indefinitely. And what we want to do is change the law. You sign it that says from now on, the Congress does not have to raise the debt ceiling ever again. Because if the government of the United States, through its budgeting process, spends the money, we're not going to pretend like we can't pay the bill when when the credit card bill comes due at the end of the month. And that's what the debt ceiling is, okay? The debt ceiling is not about uh, paying uh, it's, it's not about agreeing to spend the money. It's agreeing to pay the money you've already spent. 
So the, there should never be a debt ceiling conversation. And this is a great time to get the Republicans and Democrats to agree, let's get rid of it once and for all. However, what the Democrats should not do is ever, ever agree to the budgets that have been circulating in Wall Street and in Washington that this government wants to put into effect. Those budgets are a reason to shut down the government, not the debt ceiling. And by the way, another factor that weighs on the markets is the markets know that Donald Trump is crazy. They know that. They, they, they're not. These are smart people. They think it doesn't matter. Again, you see how that, that schism between what's real in the world and you know, society, if you will, and the economy. They're willing to believe, which is sort of ostrich-like, that you know, they can put their head in the sand all they want, but <clears throat> Donald Trump is dangerous to the economy. And I think they know that. And at some point, they're going to go, oops, okay, even though he may be an idiot, and we've always thought, but he's our idiot, therefore, who cares? Let's just have fun while this, you know, make, make hay while the sun shines. The reality is they're now coming to realize, oh, my God. What he's doing is actually hurting the economy so bad that the markets are going to come down. And when that dawns on them, which I believe it will before the 2018 election, it'll be very interesting to see what happens politically. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Will the Republicans choose to abandon Trump or will they choose to, to surround him as they have historically when they know he's doing some crazy things? And uh, we don't know. We'll see. Uh, isn't it interesting, Matt, that today this is being recorded, what, on the 7th of February? And uh, what's happening in Washington is the Democratic uh, leader of the Senate, the minority leader of the Senate, uh, Schumer, and the Democratic majority leader, um, McConnell, have worked out a bill they think that will finance the government for the next two years. Now, I'm a little concerned about that, frankly. Because the last time Schumer went up against McConnell, he got his clock cleaned because Schumer's just too traditional. And McConnell is a wily old turtle. Well, <laughs> I'm not pleased with, with what Schumer's been doing lately. So I don't know where that's going to end. But if they, in fact, agree to a, a budget for two years that has some of the premises built into it that the Republicans have been talking about in order to get Trump to sign it, I'm very, very concerned. So let's hold our breath. Let's see what happens. The fight should not be about the debt ceiling. The fight should be about the budget. And I don't know why the Democrats would approve a budget if it doesn't have elements in it that will bring this, the society back into balance and therefore the economy back yeah. into balance. Yeah, people should stay tuned to that because that's going to be an important fight that really gets to the heart of everything we're talking about right now. Yeah, uh, I was reading the update. It just came over, you know, as we're recording here, Ronaldo. Because uh, it is it is driving a wedge between the progressive House Democrats and Schumer's kind of standard Democratic caucus. Um, yeah, I think you know, Schumer, look, I like, I think he's a good man. I think he means well. I think Nancy Pelosi is very, very talented, means well. I think she should step aside because she doesn't get it. And she's not playing, she, she's not playing anywhere near up to the game that the Republicans are. Yeah. And, and, and and it's time for a real house cleaning in the Democratic Party. Did you ever read uh, the Calvin and Hobbes series of cartoons? No. Okay, well, this was more my generation, but I was grow I grew up on them. And the analogy I would make is that the Democrats are still playing baseball, you know, with the rules and the parks have to be about the same size and the pitch has to stand a certain distance away from the, from the plate and there are three strikes and then you're out. Well, there was a game called Calvin Ball in the Calvin and Hobbes series. That was essentially, it looked like baseball a little bit, but then Calvin just made up all the rules as he went along. 
Yeah. And that's what that's what the Demo- that's what the Republicans are playing, right? They've broken every norm. They've thrown out the rule book. They've done procedurally crazy things in order to advance their agenda because they're comfortable with wielding power. And the Democrats would rather be playing by the rules and looking like the supposedly the the rational ones while still losing control of, of, of power. I think that's where the split is, right? Is progressives are like, well, I guess if we're not going to play by the rules, let's go for this and actually advance our agenda by any means we well, can. And, and, but, you know, and by the way, Matt, I think that's a really great insight. Let me explain why. See, it's not that you want to emulate the rule breakers, and you're absolutely right about what the Republicans are doing. So uh, it's that you, you, it's that you want to create new rules because the old rules don't work anymore. See, right. it, it, the fear, the, there's an old saying, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Meaning, when in doubt, just keep doing what you've been doing, it'll all work out eventually. That ain't true. That's just not true. And that's why Melanie Hobbs's advice is bad. You cannot take a look at the last uh, 50 years of American history and the interplay of the society and the economy and tell me that that's projectable data for five years into the future, let alone 50, because it turns out it's a whole new game. Yeah. We are in totally uncharted waters. And Melanie's not allowing for the fact that what's going on in Washington and on Main Street is so radically different than what was going on for the prior 50 years that we're new, we're new terrain, new territory, uncharted waters. And what we have to do is we got to throw out the rules that don't work and bring in the rules that do. Let me give you an example, the one that's easiest for people to understand. There's no reason on earth for an electoral college today, right? None. Right. So you, know, it, you can you can have justified it back in 1776 because it took a guy two or three days to get to Philadelphia on horseback to count the votes. Okay, uh, you know I can I can I can see possibly a reason for doing it there, but that's about it. You know the idea of wise men sitting in a back room smoking cigars and drinking brandy with their cheroots are going to elect the president of the United States no matter what the popular vote is doesn't make sense anymore for this stage of our republic. Therefore, we have to say, time to let go of the Electoral College. A couple of ways it can happen. One, we could have a constitutional amendment, but that's hard to do. The other thing we just do is get all enough states that represent 51% of the Electoral College, and I think a bunch have already done this, to say, you know what, we're going to vote for the winner of the popular vote no matter what, and that way we will throw 51% of the Electoral College towards the winner of the popular vote. Yeah. Yeah, no, think, that, yeah, that's think, that's doable. It's doable immediately. What well, you need that kind of fundamental change if you're going to start to bring this this country back on track, because we're no longer a representative democracy. What we are now is an unrepresentative democracy. In other words, a minority of people, roughly thirty percent, control the entire political conversation through a combination of gerrymandering and uh, placating a donor base. Right? Isn't that a fact? 30%. Yeah, right. 30% is okay. a good number. So that's no longer representative democracy or representative democracy or republic. That's minority rule. And to me, it's scary as the Dickens because the particular administration we got through those old rules has a, um, I believe that uh, the, the, that uh, was a CBS counted or NBC or it might have been the New York Times, one of them, counted the number of lies in the Trump administration the first year. And it was over 2,000. Yeah. Which, if you do the division, means he was doing four lies a day, seven days a week. He doesn't even work seven days a week. Yeah. 
So and, we're talking about an astronomically challenging situation, and the old rules are not good enough to deal with it. We're not equipped. So we must break the old rules, and in the process, we'll get new ones. I'll give you another old rule I want to break, and then I'll quit. I don't believe that we should have a default government by two parties. I think it's a terrible mistake. I think four parties would be better for us. And because we have what's called a strong executive, we'll be even better than Britain at having a multi-party democracy. Because with a strong executive to balance what would otherwise be a parliamentary system, you get a much better new form of government. And it's totally consistent with our Constitution. And doesn't require a constitutional amendment. So we just need to be thinking this way as a society, or the economy we're going to get is the one we deserve. So Ronald, on that point, I think that, that you, you brought up an important issue, and, and it's something that I think people probably don't really look back and, and, and recognize as a major shift in the way the executive branch works. And that's that over 35 senior officers in the Trump administration have been removed or forced to resign. And there's hundreds of top positions in the executive branch that are unfilled. You know, by the way, not even nominated for it. Not even nominated for it. I think it's like 600. Yeah, they're just letting it atrophy and sit there. It's a mix of incompetence and a ideological hatred for uh, kind of traditional American uh, uh, functioning <laughs> governance. Right. Uh, you know, Wilbur Ross, Ryan Zinke, they have compromising issues and that haven't been addressed. The woman Price. Yeah, Price flying around on jets. He actually was forced to resign after it came out that he was, what is it, stock trading with advanced knowledge? Yeah, of, 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 on pharmaceutical companies he was regulating. And then there's uh, the CD, CDC chairwoman who just resigned because she was buying tobacco stocks ahead of Buying rulings. and selling tobacco stocks after she got appointed. Amazing. And then Ben Carson, who's been Secretary of Housing and Urban Development with pushing no-bid contracts to his son and daughter-in-law's companies. It's yeah, just and, unbelievable. And, yeah, so it's, 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 we've become exactly what Putin's got, a kleptocracy, except Putin's pretty good at it and, and Trump isn't. So, you know, Trump's, Trump's stealing billions and Putin's stealing trillions. I mean, it's, Trump is a piker compared to the boss he works for. Yeah. But let me tell you why, why I'm, I'm going into this. It, it, again, and this is not a show about politics. Now, if you notice, if people stop and listen. I've been hammering at the Democrats as much as I'm hammering at the Republicans. And I want people to hear that. Uh, it, it, it's not that the Democrats are all good and the Republicans are all bad. That's not the problem. The problem is the system is inherently broken. And neither the Democrats or the Republicans are rising to the occasion. And that's why everybody in America is turned off. That's why, that's why Congress has such a low approval rating. People are feeling it at a deep level that their government doesn't represent them. And you know what? They're right. Yeah. The problem is the way they're addressing fact the government doesn't work is incorrect but their but their gut instinct is absolutely correct and the stock market is going to be forced to reflect that with a 20 to 30 point correction whether it likes it or not because you can only keep a balloon up in the air so long unless you put more air in it it's coming down so, and there's no way to put more air in this balloon let's give folks some thinking about how they can actually take this on Ronaldo because I think that you have you know, you talk to your elected rep representatives pretty regularly. I think that people showing up at their offices and talking to them and, and giving them some strength in terms of representing them and not just representing uh, the, the the powerful would actually be useful. What do, you, what do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, did you see the announcement that MoveOn.org made a couple of days ago that they're going to actively 
promote a hundred different congressional races. Did you see that? I didn't. Yeah, and 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 they didn't say they didn't use the word Democrats. They said a hundred progressives, and they're going to find a run in various congressional districts. Uh, my feeling is that uh, traditional Democratic candidates should be primaried by progressives if they're not willing to be progressive. In other words, the distinction you can't draw any longer is Democrat or Republican. Either you're going to change this system that's broken or you're not. you got to stand up and be counted or you won't be counted. So I believe just like the right is primarying Republicans from the Tea Party far right and, and the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists are going to be primarying from the right, I think the Democrats need to get primaried from the progressive side. And you notice I didn't use the words liberal and conservative because these those distinctions don't apply anymore. There's nothing conservative about the, what this government's doing with spending. It's remarkably radical. Okay, So it's not about conservative and liberal. It's about progressive and it's about oligarchy. It's about aristocracy versus a democratic republic. And what's got to happen is people got to start talking that way. They got to start talking that way on television. I mean, when I see television reports on major media, it makes my stomach upset. Now, I sound like Trump saying that, but I'm saying it for a very different reason. I'm saying it because the the media has been famous for creating what I call false equivalency. Yeah. So, you know, when 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 the president does something that's insane, to explain the reason he did it and as if that's of equal value to what would be the sane reaction to it is doing a disservice to the public. I believe that the the New York Times and the Washington Post have done a good job in the last year of of getting up on this. But but we got to do way more. Our fifth estate has got to do way more. I think the LA Times is starting to come back to life, although you know they're in the middle of a sale, so I don't know what's going to happen there. So it seems to me that the media has got to do a better job of clarifying what the real issues are and not succumbing to old formulations, old, old mental constructs, which no longer serve us, if they ever did. And when you see the possibility of four political parties in the country, you go, oh, that could be kind of interesting. Because then you could have compromise on a whole bunch of things because you, you wouldn't have enough votes all by yourself and you'd have to make a deal with somebody to get the deal done. And that's getting to be where we have to go as a nation. Strong executive, which we have in our constitution, and a multi-party system. It's very different from a parliamentary system. Okay? I, I, listen, I think our listeners know, in a parliamentary system like United Kingdom, Britain, the majority of the parliament picks the prime minister. So the prime minister does not really res res relate to the public at large. The prime minister is the selected individual, the leader of the party in the parliament. And so if their seats in parliament drop below 50%, which they regularly do, they have to have, at that point, a coalition government where they've got to make peace with some smaller party so they can get legislation passed. That prime ministership is called a parliamentary form of government, meaning that's who elects the prime minister. We have a strong executive system. We, we actually elect the executive indirectly by the people. You get rid of the electoral college and you can say honestly that we elect them directly, him or her. The issue now is if you have that strong executive and you have four parties at least, so there's four distinct choices on the table, you will probably get to a much better result. Example, 
The state that's done the best of unwinding gerrymandering so far is the state of California. California, four years ago, by referendum, which all the Republicans and all the Democrats resisted. And in that referendum, they said, we don't trust any of you guys, Democrats or Republicans. We're just going to take care of each other. We want these districts drawn by a citizen panel. And as a result, California is now the most advanced state in terms of reversing the effects of gerrymandering. It's got some ways to go, but it's working pretty good. Pennsylvania, as you know, just last week, decided it was going to stop gerrymandering. They were sued by the Republicans to keep it in place. Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, nope, this is gerrymandering. You got one week to fix it or we're going to fix it for you. The Republicans appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, that's a state matter. We're not going there. So Pennsylvania is going to be doing a real job at unwinding gerrymandering. And it's a very gerrymandered state. Okay. What you're going to see if gerrymandering starts to fall down is that people are going to demand that the representatives actually reflect what they think. Right now, in order to get elected, a really good progressive candidate has to be willing to be a Nancy Pelosi clone. And that then creates a self-fulfilling party that keeps acting the same way over and over again, even though it's not working. So I really am delighted to see the possibility that we'll have more than uh, one um, uh, party in the Democrats. Hopefully it'll be at least two. More than one party of the Republicans. Hopefully it'll be at least two. And I can't wait to see what happens when people line up behind candidates, not because of their party label, but because of the positions they stand for. Yeah. When that happens, you'll start to get change in Washington, and that'll get people excited. Renaldo, let's let's zoom out a little bit on that and, and talk about what business's role is in all of this. You know, it's been kind of your your driving force for the last 30 years behind the World Business Academy is figuring out how business can actually be productive and useful for society. And it seems like we're at, we're at a little bit of an inflection point in terms of whether that's going to happen or not. It's definitely going to happen. Uh, I, I, you know, we've been preaching to the business community for 30 years. Business has got to step up and take more responsibility because politics is just not capable of doing it. And uh, it's been a lonely cry in the wilderness for a long time. But over the last three decades, I've seen more and more ad- adoption of that belief that business does not exist separate from the society that it serves. And I was really, really, you know, we went through a period, Matt, really sad period, where um, for probably 150 years, we kept divorcing business from society and looking at it as somehow separate, schizophrenically. And and it was really captured in its worst form in the 70s and 80s by Milton Friedman of the Chicago School. And when Milton Friedman basically said the only purpose of business is to make money, and the way you determine how they're doing that is by you know shareholder value. Uh, did, did, did the price of the stock go up? And that's the only thing you do and you do it on a fairly short-term, quarter-to-quarter analysis. That is so flat wrong, and people are beginning to realize it. And as a result, they're going, wait a minute. If the only purpose of a business is to make money, no matter what happens to the communities around it, well then, of course they're gonna pollute like crazy. Why wouldn't they? But aren't, don't they have children too that will be drinking the lead in that water? So what ended up happening, and I'm so pleased, for those of you who didn't notice, last week, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. Now, BlackRock is the largest private uh, investment fund in America, I believe. It's got about $6.3 trillion in assets. Larry Fink came out in an editorial and said, from now on, 
BlackRock will no longer invest in companies that don't perceive their social responsibilities as well. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And I know because of my work with Just Capital and the conversations we've had with BlackRock that, that they understand that's exactly what he meant. Now, that's the end of the Milton Friedman School of, from Chicago. Because that's saying that to make a profit at the expense of the society that you're serving will not be a good long-term strategy, and it's not. So I'm seeing business come to the front now and go, okay, we got to change how this whole thing works. Just Capital, an organization I've been very involved with since inception, as you know, uh, is, has crossed over. In December of this last year, we, we went in this nonprofit, Just Capital, which ranks the public companies on the Russell 1000. So those are the largest public companies in America. We, um, we went from being somebody who was trying to get business to pay attention to what we thought society wanted in order for business to operate in a just way. And we crossed over on December 12th and we became the source of data that business, large businesses are seeking because we know more about what they need to know than they do. And they want our help. Example, uh, Walmart and, um, and, and Target who are now raising, who have agreed to raise their minimum wage across the country. Uh, and uh, other companies, which I won't mention because they haven't made public announcements yet, who have also intersected with our data sets and said, oop, oh, I get it. If I keep going down this path, it ain't good for me long term. Better change. And the data we're accumulating has gone from, gee, would you please listen to us, big business, to where now big business is saying, please, will you keep telling us more of what you know? That's an enormous sea change, Matt. It's huge. It, it, it's 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 between night and day. So, let me ask another question then. So that let's say there is a sea change going on in business, uh, and and I hope you're right, and I assume you are because you're talking to these folks. And my I guess my question is, is it going to be a big enough wave to actually affect the macro economy? That's one. And then two, you know, how does this play in with the concept of growth in general? Right. This is one of the issues between the left and the business community that, that gets, um, that people talk past each other on, right? So yeah. is there is there a way that if businesses were taking responsibility for society and your vision, that could actually lead to growth that is good as opposed to growth that is just turning nature into money? Yeah, no, I think that um, we have no choice right now. In order for the economy to grow, we have to do it in a sustainable way or it won't happen. Uh, the obvious reason for that is climate change is beating down a path towards our door at, at hurricane force, right, levels. So if you ever was – you're, you're under the misimpression, as people have been in the conversations I've have had for the last 30 years, if you're under the misimpression that somehow uh, you can do all this crap and it won't catch up with you in the environment, the answer is, ha-ha, turns out that climate change is not a hoax. Climate change is the grim reaper coming to get you. And you've got no choice but to change your act because you're not sustainable as an economy or as a world of societies. Having said that, it's really important that people realize that the number of businesses today that are changing is still a minority, but it's becoming a movement. And as it becomes a movement, and I think Just Capital, the Just Capital Index, and I hope all our listeners will start tracking Just Capital, because Just Capital is pointing out to companies what the American public thinks they need to be more just. That's starting to have an enormous impact at the highest levels of corporate activity. Now, if you want to talk about the question, and I'm glad you brought it up, can you continue to grow and not further destroy the planet, is what you're basically saying, not destroy the environment? And the answer is not only can you, 
you would you would grow exponentially. In other words, the economy you know today is one one hundredth of what it will be if we shift and do this right. Think of that. We could be one hundred times richer as a global civilization if we would change the way we go about it, and we will be broke if we don't. Broke being defined as a you know, crisis that we can't overcome in the in the in the, in the climate. Hmm? What are some examples of the of the businesses and the activities that would come and that would grow as a result if we if we took that path? Well, let's start with the most obvious one. Uh, we should make climate remediation the biggest business in the world. It's a huge business. It's trillions. We should make um, replacing our antiquated fossil fuel infrastructure and high uh, power transmission lines with microgrids across the country, which will not only dramatically reduce our energy costs dramatically, but it will also increase our employment dramatically. And it will po- give us, it will be poised to go to the 22nd century as opposed to being dangling back on the 20, 20th century. I mean, you know, our power system came out of 1880s in Manhattan. It has not fundamentally changed. It's time for that to change. You know, if we had the same telephone system that came out of 1880s in Manhattan, which was a copper wire, we'd only have 23% of the planet with a phone. Now we got 96% because we realized the copper wire was the enemy, even though that's how we got started. Same is true with high-speed transmission lines. It's the enemy. Um, it's also <laughs> hackable. It's also a subject for terrorism. So if I just took one in- industry, energy, you disrupt energy the right way, and you create massive new wealth. I'll take another one, transportation. You disrupt transportation, you create massive new wealth. Uh, number one city in the world, again, released just yesterday, for loss of time and traffic, Los Angeles, California. I think three of the top five worst cities were in, in America. Now, that tells me that if you disrupt transportation, you would save all the money that's going up literally in smoke with cars that are an idle in traffic, wasting their time, requiring huge amounts of metal to sit idle on freeways that look like parking lots. Uh, when you when you unleash that productive capacity, then that's called, by the way, we have a term for that in the economy, that's called productivity. So you wonder why productivity is stagnant. It's because we're doing all the wrong things. We're letting robber barons Steal, extract more money, almost at the point of a gun from us, i.e. Exxon, and we're doing it at the cost of the inherent economic values of the society. So to me, and, I've, and I want to deal with this squarely because I, I don't think anybody challenges my progressive credentials, and I have always had a very, very diametrically different view from Rachel Carson from Silent Spring. I'm glad she sounded the alarm bell about what we were doing in the economy. But I don't believe it's inevitable. And I don't think she believed it. When she testified, dying from cancer as she did before Congress, she wasn't testifying to, to stop the economy from growing. She was testifying to make it, make it rational that we start looking at what we're doing so that we don't create our health burdens at a cost to society that's astronomical. Oh, and guess what? That's what we did, right? So we spend twice as much as the, any country in the world on our health care system, and we rank number 16th. We're the only OECD country uh, uh, that's, which is the you know Western industrial nations basically. It, it's we're the only one that keeps dropping every year in education. We're the only one where the life expectancy has gone backwards. So white men today, born today, will be expected to live two years less 
than white men born in my generation. That's crazy. So I can, you know, our educational system is so broken that it's become a drag on the economy rather than something that supports it. So what we've got to do as a nation and ultimately as a global society is we've got to say small isn't better. Schumacher was wrong. Big is better if big is done sustainably because we need to think big to solve the problems we've created. Or to paraphrase Albert Einstein, if you use the same thinking that got you into this mess, you're not going to get out of it. So, you know, as you remember, he famously observed, you know, the same level of thinking that that gets you into a problem is is not going to be good enough to get you out of the problem. So I'm now of a point where I would love it if every left-leaning, whatever they want to call themselves, persons – really want to talk about how bigger is better if you do it right, I would love to have that conversation nationally and internationally because it's true. You see, if we bring, for example, photovoltaic microgrids to, uh, I'm going to say, 500 million people in India, it will unleash productivity. It will cause them to be able to clean up their toilets. It'll give them the ability to create jobs in their country. It'll give them an ability to raise uh, literally farmers up out of the dust who are committing suicide at astronomical rates right now in India because we can solve all of their problems. But we got to do it thoughtfully. Yeah. And, and, and the same thing as Africa. You know, we've basically written off the Middle East. So if you look at Yemen, Iran, Iraq, and what's continuing to erode in the Middle East, you can say that those wars in Afghanistan, those wars... Syria. Syria, those wars have basically destabilized and created a massive outflux of uh, uh, migration as people fled for their lives. I think six million Syrians alone fled. Okay, so you destabilize the political system of all of Europe because we didn't take care of the problem in the Middle East. Same thing's happening in Africa, where there's even more people coming out because we're not dealing with the adverse effects of climate change. Millions of people are fleeing from Africa, creating political pressure in the OECD. So it's time to wake up and smell the coffee, folks. We have got to run a society that's not only just, but that's smart and that's sustainable. When we do that, in the process, we will create enormous amounts of new wealth beyond anything you can imagine, literally. If you were sitting around, Matt, in the year uh, 1880, and someone said to you, which is when 1880s is when we started with telephones and when we started with uh, power, and said to you, Matt, uh, in, within... Less than 30 years, we're going to revolutionize the economy, and it's going to create more wealth than you can possibly imagine. It's going to free up children so we don't have to have child labor anymore. It's going to create a whole new class of people in the middle class that never existed before. We're going to break down the feudal system of peasant and owner, and we're going to do all that in 30 to 40 years tops. It's called the Industrial Revolution. You wouldn't have believed it. You would have been possible to believe it. It's like you wouldn't have believed that the Berlin Wall was coming down, but it did. So the same thing is true today. The same exact thing is true with regard to uh, what's happening in our economy. Rebuilding the planet that we've been destroying is the biggest economic opportunity of my lifetime. Rebuilding new materials to replace the toxic ones that we've relied on that's destroyed our public health is... It's a huge opportunity. We don't need asbestos and asbestos radiation is a big business. Okay. Uh, we don't need PVC. We don't need um, uh, the, the, the chemicals that are carcinogenic. And therefore, we don't need a health bill 
that's in the trillions larger than it has to be. Right. And I go on. And by the way, I want to mention about the health industry before we leave. So go ahead and say what you're going to say. Oh, I was just going to say, so, yeah, the, the other ones that are ripe for disruption are healthcare and food pro- food create production. So those are giant yeah, so, sectors of the economy. Giant. And by the way, let's let's do first. Let's do healthcare. So the announcement last week that Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase have gotten together to form their own healthcare company has massive implications in the healthcare system. Massive. I believe that the quality of healthcare that those people will receive will be dramatically better and dramatically cheaper than what we're currently doing. And that means it'll put pressure on the healthcare system that's not included in those companies, and it will create a, a, a relief on the profit depression that occurs in those companies today, supporting financially a health system that's broken. In other words, ultimately, business has got to stop paying unlimited amounts of money for healthcare and do smart healthcare. Okay? Now, lots of ways to do it. I happen to believe a single-payer system is the right answer. 26 out of the 27 most advanced nations in the world do it that way. Only one that doesn't is the United States, and they have the worst results. So I would say it makes a lot of sense to go down that path. But if we don't, if the politics won't let us, then business needs to take that over. And that's what J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon are doing. And I think that's an example. Let's go to agriculture. When you disrupt agriculture, which basically exists today because of the subsidies we put in place pre- and post-World War II, that artificially created aggregation as a benefit and created an overdependence on chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides, and now a dependence on GMOs, whether the farmers want it or not, those aggregations of economic interests in those particular sectors, all of that together, when it breaks down into much more sustainable, smaller farms doing targeted uh, growing in targeted regions, is the wave of the future, it will create huge wealth. Let me give you one last example. I'm sitting here in Santa Barbara, California. Um, I used to live in Ojai. All the orange groves around Ojai have burned to the ground. All the avocado groves burned to the ground. The, the tangerine groves burned to the ground. And I was talking to a banker in, in Ojai Valley, and we were talking about how are those people who relied on that, those forms of agriculture gonna come back? Because you can't grow an avocado tree and produce avocados in under five to six years minimum. It doesn't really hit full production until seven, eight years. You can't grow lemon trees in a day. You can't grow tangerine trees in a day. So what do you do for the next five, six, seven years while those orchards are rebuilt if you go back into orchards? And the problem with those orchards is they can require too much water and in a drought condition, you don't wanna have them in the first place. So the drought forced people to start leaving those water intensive crops years ago. You may recall, Matt, I was an avocado farmer 20 years ago, and I migrated out of avocados as I saw the drought coming, and I migrated into lemons, which are far less water consumptive, and then I migrated out of lemons about 14 years ago into aloe vera, which is a, which is a plant that you can sell that, that basically is, is a succulent. It's a cactus. Okay? It's, it takes almost no water. Um, you're going to see hydroponic farming is going to be explosive growth because if you don't, if water is your issue, Hydroponics is your solution. And hydroponics works best in small farm locations, for small farm applications. Not always, um, but in many cases that's true. So if the farmers and the orchard owners in, say, Ojai Valley decide tomorrow morning, instead of trying to grow their oranges back, which weren't that economic to begin with, and they instead decide to go into 
uh, acre-sized plots of hydroponic farming, which uses almost no water, they could start growing specialty crops and greenhouses that would be worth a fortune. So it's a huge opportunity to rebuild the agricultural community there and, and, and reset it for the next 50 years, not for the last 100 years. Those are just two examples of exponential growth that occurs. And by the way, hydroponics, many people think is using um, harmful chemicals and stuff. Uh, there's a very large company that makes not only the hydroponic growing trays, but but specialized fertilizers and pesticides, I mean, specialized fertilizers that are organic and avoids the use of pesticides. So it's not like it's a bad thing. It, it, it's been done a bad way many times in the past, but it's potentially a great thing. And I could go on and on. Solve the water crisis, you'll create huge wealth. Well, Ronaldo, Ignore it, you'll destroy it. I want, I want to start wrapping up a little bit here and, and just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about SpaceX if you want to riff on that for a minute. Oh, it's just a personal thing. Thanks for letting me do that. I, I, I just think that um, if we deal with all the fundamental things I've been talking about in this, in this show today, this broadcast, then something like SpaceX can really have a huge impact. What is SpaceX about? For about a half a billion dollars, which is a tiny fraction of what it would have taken the government, an independent entrepreneur, Elon Musk, launched the most powerful rocket available today in the world. Now, the Saturn V that went to the moon, I think, was a little bit more powerful, but those aren't built anymore. They don't exist. And what Elon's done is he's created rockets that are relatively inexpensive. And two-thirds of his rocket, as you know, fell back to space from space and landed upright uh, exactly where they, on their targets. The third one, which was supposed to land in a barge, didn't make it. But two out of three is not bad for reusable. And by the way, I understand that the two that landed had already been used once before. So the idea of commerce stepping in and taking over what we thought were inherently government activities, i.e. space exploration, it turns out you can do for a fraction of the cost and you can do much faster. So I'm really excited that we're going to be going back to the moon, I think. And it won't be on a NASA rocket. It'll probably be SpaceX or, M or uh, Blue Origin, which is Amazon's company, Bezos' company, or one of the other competitors in private enterprise. We will take over that function. Uh, private enterprise, which is J.P. Morgan Chase, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway, is taking over healthcare. Okay, CVS is an aggregation because they bought a healthcare system, but it's not. It, that's just a vertical integration. What Morgan Chase. Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon are doing is totally different than vertical integration. It's creating a parallel market that works better than the market they left. Well, no, that's all. That's all actually really exciting. I'm glad we came out talking about the positive things that are that are possible and and the theory of change that you've been advancing for so long. And I got the opportunity to work with you on for a while here. It's been great. And uh, I wanted to wrap up with the with the audience and just suggest that if you like what you hear here and if you want to help this show grow please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating on there. That's really important for getting us up in the charts and getting the, the word out about the show. Uh, you can also subscribe using whatever uh, downloading software you use for your, for your uh, podcast, and most of them have rating systems too. So please do leave a short comment there. Uh, Ronaldo, is there anything else I you want to add? Yeah, last thing, please write info at worldbusiness.org so we can send you a free subscription to Optimus Daily. It's growing People love it. They're not disconnecting. They love starting their day with 30 seconds to 90 seconds of positive news. It's that quick to get a positive fix to start your day, and it's absolutely free. So please go to info at worldbusiness.org and request it. We'd love to send it to you. And with that, I want to thank the audience for listening, and we'll be back with you next month. Thanks, Ronaldo.
Thank you, Matt. Thanks, audience. It's great talking with y'all. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.